All right. So just tell me a little bit about uh, what was happening in the apartment. So like the first the first day that we go in the apartment, this girl, so she's really sensitive to spirits and stuff. We open the door and she gets scared. And I was like, what's wrong? And she wouldn't tell me at first. Like, like she didn't trust me that much. And then I was like, what's wrong? And then she was like, oh, I don't know, like, nothing. I just got scared and all that. I still remember the first time I heard a ghost story. I was five. I was in kindergarten. I loved the monkey bars and pasta Tuesdays in the cafeteria, same as all kindergartners. Much like learning my first swear word and seeing my first rated R movie, I heard my first ghost story in a public school classroom. I had the most amazing kindergarten teacher ever. Her name was Miss Shapiro. She taught me the difference between the word eight, A-T-E, and the number eight. So that's a lesson I still remember to this day. In the entire year I had her, there was only one day that I didn't particularly enjoy. On this day, during playtime, the lights in our classroom suddenly turned off. Miss Shapiro was standing next to the light switch and said in a voice like this, On the rug for a ghost story! We didn't know what was happening. Miss Shapiro had never done anything like this before, but we were obedient kindergartners, so we got on the rug. Miss Shapiro proceeded to tell a ghost story, which would be the first one I'd ever heard in my life. The story was called The Ghost with the Bloody Finger, and I'm surprised that I remember as many details as I do today, 17 years after I heard it, and have not heard it again since. But the story goes like this. There was a family that moved into a new house, and they spent the day unloading their belongings into the house, moving everything in, getting everything set up. Finally, nighttime came and they got ready to go to bed. As they were sleeping, they heard a voice coming from the attic. And they couldn't quite make out what it was saying because they were all downstairs and it was up in the attic, but it sounded like someone was up there. And the family was obviously scared. It was a new home and they thought they were the only ones there. So the next day, the dad says, Okay, I'm going to go up and spend the night in the attic and figure out what's making all the noise up there. So he goes up there, he takes a pillow and a sleeping bag, turns off a light and proceeds to spend the night. Well, as he's sleeping, he's jolted awake by the voice And the voice says, I am the ghost with the bloody finger. And the dad gets up, he turns on the light, and he looks all around, but he doesn't see anyone. He decides to stick it out, though, and he turns off the light, and he goes back to bed. A little bit later, though, he's jolted awake again by the same voice that says, I am the ghost with the bloody finger. And so this time, he's spooked enough to abandon the mission, and he runs back downstairs. The next day, his wife asks him what happened up in the attic, and he said he was too scared to stay there the whole night. So she admonishes him for chickening out and says, I'll stay the night up in the attic tonight. She does the same thing that the dad did. She goes up into the attic, and during the night, she hears the same voice that says, I am the ghost with the bloody finger. And it scares her, but she stays, and then she hears it a second time, and she ends up chickening out as well and running back downstairs, not being able to finish the night. So at this point, both parents have chickened out, and still nobody knows what is up in the attic. So this time, the older of the two boys says, I'll go and stay up in the attic tonight, and I'll figure out what's making all the noise. So he takes his baseball bat and goes to stay in the attic that night. During the night, he hears the same voice that the mom heard and the dad heard, and it spooks him, and so he runs downstairs, unable to complete the night. Finally, the next day, the younger of the two brothers, the youngest in the family, says, 
I'll go and spend the night in the attic and figure out what it is. So the younger of the two brothers goes and stays up in the attic that night. While he's sleeping, he hears the same voice that all the other family members heard. I am the ghost with the bloody finger. But instead of running, he sits up and he yells, Well, why don't you put a band-aid on it? And that's how the story ended. Miss Shapiro turned the lights back on and we did whatever activity we did next that day. It didn't occur to me until years later that this story was intended to be a joke, with the punchline being, well, why don't you put a band-aid on it, because the ghost presumably had some sort of injury on his finger that was causing it to bleed. But that was years later. That night, I was scared out of my mind. I was so traumatized by the story, I couldn't even tell my dad what had happened in kindergarten that day. I tried to explain to him the story that Miss Shapiro had told the class. I pointed to my finger and tried to describe for him the events of the story, but he wasn't understanding. He was like, the ghost with the what finger? So I spent that night scared out of my wits. A few weeks later, the lights in our classroom turned off again. Miss Shapiro was once again by the light switch and said, On the rug for a ghost story! I was not ready for another ghost story. But I decided to give it another shot. Like, what could I do? I couldn't leave. So we got on the rug for the ghost story, and this time Miss Shapiro told a story called The Green-Eyed Ghost. Here's a brief summary of the story. This couple goes to stay in a hotel room for a few nights, and uh, while they're there the first night, they hear this voice coming from the bathroom. And it says, I am the green-eyed ghost. You're probably starting to notice a common theme with these stories. And this freaks them out a bit, right? They don't know what's in their bathroom. The second night, they hear the same voice coming from the bathroom. I am the green-eyed ghost. And uh, this time, it's less frightening, a little more annoying because they're trying to sleep and it's keeping them up. Finally, the third night rolls around, and they hear the same voice coming from the bathroom. It says, I am the green-eyed ghost. And the husband's just so fed up at this point because he can't sleep. He says, well, you'll be the black-eyed ghost if you don't shut up. And that's how the story ended. And I didn't understand it. I didn't know what a black eye was. I was five. But it wasn't as scary as the ghost with the bloody finger, so I didn't mind it. A few weeks after the green-eyed ghost story, the lights went off again in the classroom. And Miss Shapiro says, on the rug for a ghost story. I wasn't dreading it as much as I had been the second time, but I didn't know what to expect. This third story that my teacher told us was about a couple of sailors in a storm, and during the storm they saw a ghost. I don't remember all the details of the story, and I don't even remember the punchline, but I do remember that I enjoyed it considerably more than the first and second stories. The first one had scared me senseless, and the second one I didn't understand at all, but this third one was actually enjoyable. So that day I went home feeling a little bit better about ghost stories. And I wouldn't hear another ghost story that would scare me until 14 years later. Welcome to episode one of the Adversary Podcast. We're going to get right into it, but first off, just a few disclaimers. This podcast is not affiliated with nor sponsored by any church or religious institution of any kind. We operate independently of any organization. In other words, this is not a ministry. This podcast does not endorse any one system of beliefs. It only presents what I consider to be the best and strongest case in support of the reality of spirits. I'll also occasionally refer to spirits using broader terms such as supernatural or paranormal. So in the context of this podcast, these words are synonymous and exclude other subjects like aliens or Bigfoot or the Loch Ness Monster, although two of the three may have good explanations, but that's for another podcast. 
To make this case, I will draw from sources that have ties to religion. In fact, that's pretty much the only way I can make this case. A spirit being is a religious concept, after all. But hear me out, whether you're a believer or a skeptic, this will get interesting, and you're doing yourself a favor by looking at something from what may be a new point of view. In addition to making a case, I just wanted to hear real accounts of people's experiences with the supernatural. In other words, I wanted good ghost stories. Ghost stories for an older me. But ghost stories for kids aren't like ghost stories for adults. While you still get stories of places and houses and buildings being haunted, in ghost stories for grown-ups, people can be haunted. Or even possessed. While I won't talk about possession in detail in this episode, it is a good jumping off point here in explaining how someone could figure out where to find these stories. The reverse of possession is called exorcism, a term you're probably more or less familiar with. It's generally defined as the practice of removing or casting out a spirit from a human body. Now here's an interesting thing. If you go to Google and you type in exorcism, hit the enter key, the first result that pops up is Wikipedia. Obviously, that's usually the result that pops up first. If you click on the link, it'll take you to the Wikipedia article about exorcism. Now scroll down the article until you get to the section entitled Christianity. You're probably wondering, well, why Christianity? And that's just for the simple reason that we probably most often associate exorcism and possession with Christianity, for better or for worse. So that's a reasonable place to start. In the Christianity section of the article, you'll see three churches listed there. The first one is the Catholic Church. When it comes to exorcisms in the Catholic Church, it's been done to death. At this point, Catholic exorcisms have been featured so many times in popular media that it might be impossible to tell fact from fiction when it comes to ghost stories from their end. So on to the second church listed by Wikipedia. The Lutheran Church. Okay, well that's kind of a breath of fresh air. The Lutheran Church hasn't garnered nearly as much attention as the Catholic Church has for exorcisms. I actually wasn't even aware that Lutherans performed exorcisms, so there's an untapped source. But at the same time, I don't really know that much about the Lutheran Church. I probably couldn't do it justice if I were to talk about it. And I certainly don't know who I would contact to get true stories about Lutheran exorcisms. So I'll go ahead and yield that topic to whoever does know who to contact and wants to get rich. This brings us to the third and final Christian church listed in the Wikipedia article. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, formerly known as the Mormon Church. Now, this was a church that I did know something about. I live in Utah, after all, and its stories remain pretty much untouched. If you read the subsection about the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in the article, it says that exorcisms are, quote, generally performed by bishops, missionaries, mission presidents, and stake presidents. Missionaries is the key word in that sentence. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints runs one of the largest missionary programs on the planet. It consistently sends huge numbers of missionaries to almost every part of the world. Last year, there were over 67,000 missionaries serving in missions across the globe. That gives me a lot of people to talk to. Here's a little background info about missionaries for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Guys typically go out when they're 18 and girls go out when they're 19. Guys will spend two years and girls will spend 18 months serving in whatever location they're assigned by the church. They can go pretty much to any location around the world, although some hot spots are Mexico, Brazil, the Philippines, and the United States. Their main goal is to find people interested in the church's message and, if they're interested, help them join the church via a ceremony called baptism. The men are called elders, even though they're young, usually 18 to 22 on average, and the women are called sisters, even though they're not biologically related to each other. Missionaries operate in companionships of usually two, but up to three. They are distinguishable from other members of the church by their black name tags and formal dress at all times. 
As for why missionaries seem to encounter the supernatural more often than general members of the church, the reason is that evangelism requires interaction, and missionaries aren't picky. They'll talk to anyone, regardless of anything, so it may be only a matter of time before a missionary comes across something out of the ordinary. And that's what I was looking for. The first story I'd like to tell is about three missionaries serving in Houston, Texas in the spring of 2019. They were just about to say goodbye to a member of their church whom they had just visited. This member was not a regular attendee of the local congregation, in fact he was termed less active by the missionaries, and their visit to him that day was in part to encourage him to return to Sunday meetings. As they prepared to leave, the lead missionary of the group shook hands with this less active member. Instantly, the elder knew something was wrong. Something had happened in that brief handshake. The elder sensed something... dark. Not wanting to cause alarm, the elders departed without incident and returned to their shared living quarters, an apartment not far away. Shortly thereafter, the three missionaries began their studies, as time is set aside every day for missionaries to read the scriptures or other church-related materials on their own. The studying wouldn't last long, though. Slowly, the feeling that had come over the first missionary when he shook the member's hand started to spread to the other two elders. As they realized that something was happening and expressed their shared discomfort, one of them stood and commanded that whatever had turned their three into four, leave. Following this event, the elders turned on some church music to lift the mood, and try to keep whatever had just left, gone. Now, when I first heard the story about the missionaries serving in Houston, Texas, I thought it was a bit bizarre. I had never heard of a spirit, or whatever it was, being transferred via a handshake, or from person to person like that. I wasn't even sure if that was even possible. And I thought that until I heard another story. A similar story. This next story was told to me by my friend, who served in New Zealand. The exact opposite side of the globe is Houston. And yet this story corroborates the first one. In order to understand this next story a little bit better, I need to define a few terms first. A mission refers to a geographical region somewhere in the world in which missionaries operate. A mission can be as large as a country or as small as a city. Next, the mission is divided into smaller regions called areas. Generally, missionaries stay in their assigned areas until they are transferred to a different area by the mission president, who oversees the activities of all the missionaries in the mission. So my friend's story begins with him packing up his stuff and preparing to leave his area. In his mission, that day, it was transfer day. Usually, every six weeks, some missionaries are moved around the mission as determined by the mission president. This is done to give the missionary experience some variety. So on this transfer day, my friend was being transferred out of his area to another area. A new missionary would come in and take his place and be companions with his old companion. This new companionship would live in the same apartment he just moved out of. My friend told me that when he lived in this apartment, he didn't notice anything strange or abnormal about it in any way. The trouble started only after he'd left. This whole story really begins when this new companionship went to go teach a part member couple that my friend had been working with before he'd left. A part member couple just refers to a couple in which one person is a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and the other person is not. In this case, the husband was a member of the church and the wife was still trying to decide whether or not she wanted to join. She had been in the process of making this decision for a long time. Many missionaries had come and gone without seeing her get baptized, which is the equivalent to becoming a full-fledged member of the church. But on this particular night, the missionary's visit was going really well. So well, in fact, that the missionaries asked the wife if she'd like to choose a date to be baptized. The wife was still hesitant and was spending some time thinking about it. But this was actually a good sign because her usual response was just to outright reject any offer to be baptized. 
Every time missionaries had asked in the past, she would just say she didn't feel ready and that would be that. But on this night, she seemed to be seriously considering it. And the room was silent as she thought about what she would say. Suddenly, her husband, who had been sitting by her side, flew into a rage. He stood up and started screaming and swearing at her, saying that if she didn't know what she wanted to do, she shouldn't waste the missionary's time. The missionaries naturally were shocked by this outburst. The older missionary had known this member for a while. He was a nice guy, and this was completely out of character for him. The elders decided to end the lesson and leave so that the situation could de-escalate. After they had left, the missionaries reviewed their lesson and started to suspect that something had interfered with their visit. They also had this weird feeling start to follow them around throughout the rest of the evening. At the end of the day, the missionaries made their way back to their apartment, or flat, as they're called in New Zealand. To get to the door of their flat, they had to first climb up some wooden steps, which of course they had done many times before without any issues. But this time, as they were going up the wooden steps, one of the steps out of nowhere suddenly snapped in half. The elders tried not to think too much of it and just went inside. A few nights after the step had broken, one of the missionaries was taking a shower after a long day of working outside. Randomly, he got the feeling that they needed to leave. He ignored that feeling, but then he felt it again. So in the middle of a shower, he cracked open the door to the bathroom and peeked outside. His companion was standing there in the hall, looking at him, and asked, Did you feel that? Later, that same night, they prayed, but they felt like it was okay to stay, and so that's what they did. Then, at around midnight, both elders suddenly woke up at the same time with the same feeling that they needed to get out of there. They called the mission president, who didn't pick up. So they called the mission president's assistants, who gave them permission to stay at another elder's flat nearby. The next day, the elders returned to their original flat, and ended up staying the night there because they didn't feel like anything was wrong. But they also didn't feel completely at ease either. At around midnight that night, they again felt like they needed to leave. They called the mission president and the mission president's assistants, both of whom didn't pick up. So they called my friend and his companion, and all four elders ended up at this flat where my friend heard this story. My friend said a prayer to bless the flat, essentially ridding it of whatever was there that they couldn't see. After the prayer, the atmosphere in the flat seemed to return to normal. Then the elders began to tell my friend about the incredibly strange air of contention and fights that would break out between them throughout the last week. One of the elders blew up at the other one night and didn't understand why he was so angry. The other elder was also really upset and acting way differently from how he usually did. Because of this odd behavior the missionaries had exhibited, my friend was convinced that something had been there in the flat, messing with them. But whatever it was, it was gone now. And hopefully, it wouldn't be back. These accounts demonstrate that spirits may be transferred from person to person and cause an air of hostility and discomfort. These stories are mild examples. When it comes to just how crazy these things can get, I haven't even touched the surface. Be warned that these accounts will get progressively more intense with each episode. I'm starting off slow because these stories are true and I want to spend time building a case for their authenticity. Our next episode will take us to France, where this time, sister missionaries are learning just how real this stuff can be. If you have a story that you'd like to share, send an email to theadversarypodcast at gmail.com or send us a message on Instagram at theadversarypodcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope we didn't scare you away. The Adversary Podcast is hosted and written by me, Ethan Lars. Lars isn't actually my last name, but my last name is too hard, so here we are. Thank you so much for listening to Episode 1. We will be back next week with Episode 2.